Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 74. On today's episode, we're going to share the conclusion of a two-part hacker history episode when the lights went out in Ukraine. But first, a word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamet-Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, and the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. Just a quick note before we begin, this episode is the second half of a hacker history story about Russia's attacks on Ukraine's power grid. If you haven't already, I recommend going back now and listening to When the Lights Went Out in Ukraine, Part 1. And now, without further ado, the climax and conclusion of our tale. It happened one year later, nearly to the day, like some sort of recurring nightmare. Back on December 23, 2015, Russian hackers known as Sandworm had leveraged a cyber compromise in Ukraine's power grid system to perform a shutdown, cutting the power to hundreds of thousands of citizens in the west of Ukraine. Now, on December 17, 2016, two days before Christmas, they were back. This time, burrowed inside of the IT networks at the Pivnichna Electrical Substation just outside of the capital city, Kyiv. And this time, with a malware far more sophisticated than the first. There were quite a number of differences between these two events, even though the ultimate goal was similar. Robert Lepovsky is a principal threat intelligence researcher for ESET. He and his colleague Anton were the very first researchers to get a hold of the malware used in the attack. So through a combination of that and sample sharing, we got our hands on these suspicious files and uh, we immediately started analyzing them and, and discovered that it was a new, entirely new strain of malware, something that we have never seen before. Black Energy 3, the tool used to cut the power in Ukraine the first time around, was a traditional malware. It had developed organically out of the cybercrime underground as a denial-of-service tool, then was twice upgraded to include lots of other features for reading, stealing, and manipulating data, including on Windows-based industrial control systems. This new attack tool was a different thing altogether. It was also also puzzling. So, I mean, when you you discover something that is entirely new and, and is sort of doing these weird things that you're not used to, it it 
always grabs your attention and, and you have to figure out what's going on. Robert and his colleagues began their analysis expecting something like they'd seen before. Initially, we we tried to dissect the code. I mean, for the like regular Windows parts of the malware, that's something that we're we're really familiar with and accustomed to the, the, such techniques. But but the part the SCADA software, the the ICS part of it, that's that's a totally totally different game. It became clear that the malware was uniquely handcrafted to attack specific industrial machinery. It spoke four different protocols. That was IOC 101, its uh, TCP IP counterpart IEC, IEC 104, OPCDA, and IC 61850. So these are these are different communication protocols used in ICS environments and Industry had implementations of four different modules, which uh, would send commands to to industrial components in in that environment using each of these communication protocols. Each of those, they they would have their own uh, configuration as to as to what commands to send. In the entire decades long history of cybersecurity before two thousand sixteen. Only two publicly known cyber attacks had ever managed to sabotage the actual machine operations at industrial sites. There was Stuxnet, still to this day the most remarkable cyber attack software ever written. At the turn of the 2010s, US and Israeli intelligence designed malicious programs that instructed nuclear centrifuges to spin at rates that would, at first, sabotage the material inside and later outright destroy the centrifuges themselves. It was the first computer program to ever cause kinetic damage to machinery. And the only other case really worth mentioning was actually a scientific experiment. In 2007, the Idaho National Laboratory ran a test called Aurora to demonstrate how a cyber attack could destroy physical machinery deployed in a power station. Using malware created in a lab, the scientists triggered a rapid opening and shutting of circuit breakers in a diesel generator out of phase from the rest of the grid it was attached to. The abnormal electrical force caused by this desynchronization caused the generator, a massive steel behemoth of a thing weighing the equivalent of around seven elephants, to outright explode. The Aurora test was, in a sense, the closest equivalent for what Russia intended to do in Ukraine that day in 2016. And to the weapon they wielded to do it, Robert and Anton gave the name in Destroyer. It was not a single, uh, single executable. So, uh, but it was. It had multiple components. So we can think of it as a framework uh, with plugins that can extend its functionalities. Advanced malware developers write modular malware when they need to squeeze a lot of firepower into a single package. It had. An orchestrator launch, launching the other components. The launcher contained a specific activation time on a specific date, December 17, 2016. It had mechanisms for, for establishing persistence. It had some backup modules. So in case some of the other persistence mechanisms were discovered or disabled, it would also have a backup in place to retain that foothold. 
The main back door included all of the modules and connected the malware with command and control infrastructure, from which the attackers could download additional software and send commands to specific machines. The program's many modules allowed it to do more, hide better, extend further, and resist any potential defense mechanisms more deftly than 99.9% .9 of the malware you'll find out in the wild. With such a versatile tool, the attackers had staked their footing inside of the Ukrainian substation. Now, they were taking control, sending commands directly to circuit breakers out in the field. It was just a few minutes before midnight on December 17th, when sandworm hackers opened every single breaker at the North Kyiv transmission station. The effect was a shutdown of one-fifth of the power to Ukraine's largest city, an event that paralleled its achievement one year prior. Thousands of Ukrainians likely didn't even notice what was happening while they slept. Perhaps some others felt a degree of deja vu. What they didn't realize on that dark, cold winter night is that this time around, shutting down the power was only one step. This time around, their attackers were gearing up to do much worse. Beyond its capabilities for intrusion, persistence, and control over remote Windows computers, Indestroyer contained within it another more devious component, a wiper. So the purpose of, of that was to deny the operators at that substation visibility and control into their environments. Shortly before midnight, just as the shutdown began and the plant operators began to panic, the wiper added a second, unwelcome wrinkle, wiping critical configuration files off of their machines. So, so the attackers have caused the de-energization, and now that the operators were trying to resolve the issue, then they would have a much difficult time because of the effect of that wiper component. By targeting and excising those necessary config files, the attackers crashed the operator's workstations, rendering them unbootable and difficult to recover. The operators, therefore, lost all visibility and control over their machinery. In other words, the substation was now under near total control of the hackers. It's also something that I should mention is that the operators, they already had past experience from the 2015 incident to go into manual mode to restore the power. They wanted to do that as, as quickly as possible, obviously. So they they had the option to switch from automated to, to manual operation. And the attackers were basically hoping for that and counting on that. Step three. After the shutdown and the wiper, this would be the final killing blow. And that was a denial-of-service module specifically aimed at Siemens uh, Ciprotec uh, protection relays. In 2015, Siemens Ciprotec protective relays, the kind used in Ukraine's grid, among many others, were discovered to have a critical vulnerability in an Ethernet module. So the vulnerability at the time that it was deployed was already known, but the state of patching uh, in, in such environments that have to be running 24-7, let's say, is, is not always ideal. So, so that's why the attackers uh, decided to go, to go that route. With this vulnerability, any attacker who could send data to these devices could put them into a sleep state, meant for firmware updates, in effect, taking them down. 
but Sandworm was already shutting off so many other critical components of the electrical grid. Why was this, in particular, so important? As the name suggests, a protection relay serves a very important role in uh, electric grid operations. It's there to protect the grid from various harmful conditions, so it's monitoring various uh, variables, frequency, voltage, current, and, and, and so on. So by disabling those protection relays, the power grid could theoretically go into a dangerous state. The attackers would wait, first, for the power to cut out. Then, assuredly, operators at the substation would notice, but be unable to fix the problem because their monitors were down too. That's when they go out to manually switch on the relays to prevent any potentially much more damaging and even potentially dangerous conditions. If they had succeeded, then the blackout would not last just merely one hour, but if some de- some equipment was even destroyed, then it could have lasted much, much longer until that equipment was repaired or replaced. So it's surprising in a way that with all of this forethought and careful, precise planning, the entire plot ended up a failure. There was a huge contrast in the um, ambitions that the attackers had and what was actually accomplished. Around 1 a.m. on December 18th, power returned to the entirety of Kyiv and the relays were manually switched on in time, operating as intended. To this day, it's unclear exactly what transpired in the hour between midnight and 1 on the 18th in Kyiv. The best approximation comes from a report published in 2019 in which researchers from Dragos proposed three possibilities. It's possible, they argued, that the operators beat their hackers to the mark flipping on the relays before they could be remotely shut down. There might have also been backup relays the hackers hadn't accounted for. The most likely explanation, possibly, was that it came down to a simple error. Strange as it sounds, the attackers may have intended to send their malicious data packets to the Pivnichna relays, but accidentally routed them to the wrong IP addresses instead. And so, the Ukrainian plant operators were able to switch on their relays then regained control of their systems and restored normalcy to the Kyiv grid, all while most ordinary citizens slept peacefully in their beds, none the wiser. The end. And we haven't seen Indestroyer again for the next about five years until the invasion began last year. While Russian troops gathered on the border of Ukraine, one week before they were set to invade the sovereign nation, the Sandworm Group breached a Ukrainian energy company for the third time. The goal, it appears, was total war. While above ground, Russia would bombard its neighbor with gunfire and bombs, on the web, its hackers would enact a cyber attack at a scale never seen before in history. They wanted to cut the lights for a large population in Ukraine. It affected a regional electricity distribution company in a region with around 2 million people. That would be the impact, 2 million people being left in the dark at a time of war. They dusted off their old weapon. They kept the malware 
sort of in a shelf. They they made modifications to it, so there had there were changes made between the two versions. In Destroyer, the first one, where it was a modular framework consisting of multiple components, with In Destroyer two, it's a single executable. The same applies to its configuration. So the different modules of In Destroyer one had separate configuration files. Whereas uh, with the second Industroyer, the configuration was embedded in the samples. In some ways, this was a theme of what Robert and Anton named Industroyer 2, where the first Industroyer was big and complex with lots of moving parts. Its successor was simplified, the same powers but in a streamlined package. Also, the first Industroyer it had that the, that implementation of those four different ICS protocols, Industrial 2 only had one. So so in a way, if, if, if you compare these two, you can you can actually consider it to be a simplification of the original version, while at the same time fixing some of the some of the programmatic errors, some of the flaws that were in, in the original code base that also played their role in it not being successful and not accomplishing what they what they wanted to do. Though it simplified in meaningful ways, in certain other ways, the second version was considerably more threatening than the first. For example, where Indestroyer 1 had a wiper, Indestroyer 2 deployed four simultaneously, one for Windows systems and three for Linux. After an initial period of reconnaissance and establishing its foothold in the target network, Sandworm triggered the countdown to deploy Indestroyer 2 six weeks into the war on April 8th. One thing worth mentioning is the timing of the attack. So they timed it for a Friday late afternoon in the hopes of uh, people or, or the defenders sort of having their, uh, their, their shields down, getting ready to go home for the weekend. And sort of catch them, catch them by 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 surprise, uh, at at such a time. The plant would be far less equipped to respond to their attack after work on a Friday, meaning more time to operate and likely longer and more significant grid shutdown. They set the shutdown to trigger at 5:10 p.m. local time, and a wiper for 10 minutes thereafter. the The actual effect that that had was that yeah, a lot of people at that facility have gone home, which meant that a lot of the workstations were turned off, not talking about the the ICS environment, but a lot of workstations which were non-critical being turned off. And the wipers that were scheduled to to deploy, to, to launch at a specific time and to make uh, restoration harder and, and, and so on, just failed to fail to, fail to launch because those machines were, were not running. The malware did still penetrate some operating stations, but perhaps unsurprisingly, after so many attacks in years prior, the victims were not caught entirely off guard. The malware did still penetrate some operating stations, but perhaps unsurprisingly, after so many attacks in the years prior, the victims were not caught entirely off guard. Once the intrusion was detected in that environment, then 
the defenders were really swift to step in. According to Ukraine's CERT, Industroyer 2 managed to temporarily disrupt power at nine undisclosed electrical substations, but the effect may have gotten lost to some degree in the fog of war, with plenty of other blackouts and destruction far worse than that occurring all around the north and east of the country. The bad and the sad part is that the Russians have managed to accomplish blackouts through kinetic means and through through missile attack. Thus, what Russia failed to achieve with cyber weapons, they still managed to accomplish with kinetic ones. And, of course, they continue to do it to this day. But after 2015, 2016, and 2022, you'd bet those hackers will come back again with an even bigger, more ambitious cyber attack before too long. Maybe in Destroyer 3, Black Energy 4, or something bigger and more perilous than anything before. Or maybe not limited to Ukraine. In 2018, CISA published an advisory about malware infecting industrial control systems right here in the U.S. Since at least 2011, years before the first power grid attack in Ukraine, the government agency had discovered multiple cases of American companies infected by the same malware family, Black Energy. Perhaps the next story like this won't happen to people thousands of miles away. And that concludes episode number 74 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. This episode was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. And a special thank you to Robert Lepovsky for sharing his firsthand knowledge. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation in the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io.